and thank you that you are indeed a true God, our true Father. God, that by your Spirit you have gathered us here this morning as your people uh, to worship you through singing, through fellowship, through communion, and through prayer, and now through the uh, reading of your scriptures. God, I thank you that your Holy Spirit has inspired this word to be written and has preserved it for generations for our benefit. And God, now I ask that by your Spirit you would uh, stir up our minds, attention, and hearts, affection to you. God, that you would give us understanding of this word that you've inspired and that you would empower our obedience uh, to live out as your children uh, here on earth. God, we thank you for the gift of the gospel and pray that this time uh, honors you and uh, serves your people well and stirs us up for joyful obedience. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is God's word. Friends, Jesus is our true and better hero who leads us to live a life of true victory for his glory and for our joy, and that the good news of Jesus would go forth to the nations. And this good news is for us today. A few years ago, a movie came out, The Avengers. Great movie if you like superhero films. Had several different characters, the Hulk, Iron Man. And if you watch the movie, you can see that each hero in the film has different skills and different gifts they bring to the table. And one of the great parts of the plot line of the Avengers was not only how this group of superheroes were fighting this supernatural force, but rather how these group of superheroes had to learn to work together. There was this internal story of, of uh, friction between some of the human characters. Uh, who had the better gift? Who had the better skill? What, what makes a hero a true hero? Is it the uh, sharpness of his mind? Is it the brute strength he brings to the table? Is it the fact that he can fly? Is it his mastery of technology? Is it speed? What defines a superhero? So as you watch the film, and everybody should because it's amazing, you can see that the heroes are, are having to learn how to work together to not fight with each other, but actually to, to use each other's skills and gifts to work together to uh, complete the task. And as I watch movies like this, because they're awesome and I have a son and I'm still a boy myself, I see that much in the same way we often define heroes or a heroism by some sort of skill or what we value and maybe what we aspire to. I mean, maybe the gift that you value most is not flight, and you don't aspire to fly, but maybe it's something else. I mean, think about how we uh, elevate people in our lives today. Those with sharp minds, maybe we elevate and say, that person is a brilliant hero. I mean, he's so smart. Look what he can do. 
Or that woman over there just has impeccable beauty. I mean, we, we lift up celebrities because of maybe how smart they are or maybe how, uh, how good they look or maybe what kind of skill they have or even athletes. They're a fast runner. That person is a hero in the sport. I want to be a fast runner like that guy. So in our culture today, we find heroes and we define heroes by something maybe we, that we value or maybe that they bring to the table and maybe something that we aspire to do ourselves. And this is not only in culture, it's not only in sports or film or politics or medicine, uh, it's also in our spiritual walk, in our religious life, and the circles of faith at which we find ourselves. Maybe you don't struggle with this, but I'm sure some of you do. Maybe you have heroes in your faith. You see somebody and you say, man, that person is a true hero in the faith because he can preach so well. It's not a problem here, is it? <laughs> Or maybe you say, that person is a hero in the faith because they travel the world uh, doing this missionary work. Or that person's a hero in the faith because of their service or their prayer life. Or that person is a hero in the faith uh, because of this kind of spiritual gift or this kind of discipline that they uh, just do so much better than everybody else. Now, it's not necessarily bad. But what happens is we can lose sight of the heroic traits and what they are to point to when we find ourselves valuing the person rather than the skills that that person, uh, or the person that those skills are to point to. Right? This is a problem for us today. I mean, especially for pastors and churches, we can idolize other churches and say, well, look, that pastor gets to preach to 5,000 people on a Sunday. Or that church has three services. Or that church has this, that, and the other. We end up idolizing, thinking that we define uh, spiritual heroism because of something else other than the gospel. We define spiritual heroism maybe by uh, spiritual gifts or number of people or number of activities. And this is not good, and it's nothing new. We look back to the very first century, I mean the first century of the Christian faith here, just a couple decades after the time of Jesus, you see that uh, the early churches were being planted. They were still figuring out how to, how, to, uh, how to thrive as a Christian church. They were trying to figure out what does their Christian faith look like compared to their Jewish heritage. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to such an audience that is trying to figure out the role of the heroes of their Jewish faith and how that shakes out with their Christian faith. They're trying to figure out, well, well, you know, we look at our heritage, our tradition, and we, we see all these great things that were happening, and now here we are in the first century, suffering persecution, having uh, churches that are trying to figure out how to operate, and all the while we look back and say, things were great there, but now that we're Christian, things are not so great, and we're trying to figure this out. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to the first century church, who is struggling with the same things that maybe you and I struggle with today, whether it be spiritual or cultural, defining what, what true heroism looks like and who our true hero is and how that patterns our life. In the first century, the early Christians, uh, many had Jewish roots. Many in the first century were trying to figure out how uh, to embody this new Christian faith in light of their tr Jewish tradition, and many were suffering persecution. Some were being imprisoned. Some were being martyred. Churches were being oppressed in many different ways. And all the while, they're trying to figure out 
um, is this new faith really the way we should go? Because when we read the Old Testament, we see that some things were pretty good. And the author of Hebrews writes in this passage today, affirming who God used in the Old Testament, affirming the, the truth of the Old Testament, but showing them and showing us today how all of that points us to Jesus. That, that the Old Testament is not an isolated part of Scripture and that Moses and prophets in the Old Testament are not isolated heroes of the faith, but rather that is all leading us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we see in the Scriptures today, in Hebrews chapter 3, that a true heroic life is one that points us to Jesus because Jesus is the true and better hero who leads us to walk in victory. So I want us to look at a couple things today, and I want us as always to take an honest assessment of our lives, of our hearts, of our minds, of our faith personally, and also as a church, and see how we tend to be apart from Christ, to see who Jesus is and how he is our true and better hero, and how this will pattern us to live lives that honor Christ. Is that good? So first, I want us to take an honest assessment of our short-sighted heroism. Now, listen to this. In our nature, we all want and need a hero. We all want a hero. We all need a hero. Think about somebody in your life that you just idolize. So think of somebody in your life that you just admire so much. Maybe it's a, a, your father or your mother. Uh, maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's somebody who is outstanding in their field. Maybe the same line of work you're in. You're thinking, man, this guy I work with, he is a brilliant scientist. Or he's a brilliant doctor. Or she is a brilliant actress. Or she's a brilliant businesswoman. Think about somebody in your life that you just idolize and admire because of the qualities they have. Maybe it's somebody in the faith as well. I mean, in my life personally, I'm a, I'm a young pastor. I've only been at this almost a decade. And there's so many pastors that I admire. And I look at them and say, man, these guys are men of faith. They're great preachers. They're strong leaders. Uh, they're just insightful men. I want to be like these guys. Right? In the first century, we see that all of us have short-sighted heroism. We all see a hero, but in the end, it is not fully where we should be looking. In the first century, there was no greater hero of the Jewish faith than Moses. Moses was one of the most revered men of God because he not only wrote and recorded the first several books of the Old Testament, but he was an instrument of God to do amazing things. If you know the story of, of Moses, you should read uh, the book of Exodus and you see that, that Moses uh, is, is a guy who uh, by birth was born into a, a, a horrible situation where uh, kids were getting killed. And God in his providence spared Moses as a, as a young boy, as a baby. And that God uh, in his kindness had Moses grow up in Egypt and, and was educated and was smart and, and acquired great skills. And Moses, although he... Um, actually killed a guy and was exiled, God used that time uh, to build him and to shape him in such a way that God came down and spoke to him from a burning bush and said, I'm going to use you to free thousands of your people that are in bondage in Egypt. If you know the story that, that Moses is like, who am I? I'm not, I'm not some eloquent speaker. I'm not some eloquent leader. Who am I that you would use me? 
And God uses Moses to set free thousands of people. Through Moses, God did miraculous things, miraculous signs and wonders. Moses not only was an instrument of God's uh, miracles, but also he witnessed so many amazing things. I mean, you know that God used Moses to lead people out of bondage. God used Moses to part the Red Sea. God uh, used Moses to lead people across, and God used Moses to deliver his law to his people. Moses was a man who got to ascend a mountain and dwell in God's presence and then come down with the law of God. That's awesome. Moses was also the one who helped set up uh, both religious and political um, regulations for God's people and to lead them to the promised land. But if you know the story, Moses was not a great hero in the end. Due to Moses' rebellion and and Moses' lack of character in some regards, Moses never got to enter the promised land. Moses was a hero of the faith, but not the true hero. You see, Moses' representative work uh, within him was to point us to Christ. And see, in the first century, there was no one greater than Moses that you could revere. I mean, he was the guy you wanted to be like. You wanted to be a strong leader. You wanted to be a good religious guy. You wanted to be so good that you got to dwell in the presence of God and be used of God. The writer of Hebrews says this, verse 2. He says, Moses was faithful in all God's house. But verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of the house has, more honor than the house itself. Verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So you see, Moses' role was not to be the true hero of God's people. Moses was merely an instrument of God to point people to Christ. Moses was a man who led God's people to the precipice of where Christ would take us all the way through. That was his role. He was a faithful servant. But Scripture tells us that his role, his purpose, was to testify to what would come later. So imagine being in the first century saying, I, want to, I understand this Jesus, and I'm seeing that we're facing persecution, and I kind of like the old religious way better. I kind of want to go back to uh, this uh, Judaism And the writer is saying, look, that is good, but it's to point us to Christ. Moses is a man who was a servant, but he is not the true hero of the faith. He is just a servant pointing to Christ. So you and I today must ask ourselves this question. What does our faith look like? And how is our faith shaped on a day-to-day basis? Do we find ourselves looking to Christ or do we find ourselves looking to God's servants that are pointing us to Christ, but we don't see who they're pointing to because we're too busy looking at them? Are you with me? I mean, it's very easy for a first century Jew to say, hey, we like Moses. I mean, Moses did this, 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 and this. Moses is great. Moses wrote five books of the Bible. What books did Jesus write? I mean, Moses did all this wonderful things. We're not sure about Jesus, right? It's easy for us to do that today. They say, well, look at this church. This church has this, that, and the other, or this pastor does this, that, and the other, or this person in my life has much better spiritual disciplines than I do. All the while, that is to point us to Christ. 
It's like if you were walking. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? You should go. It, you should go. Right? The great pastor Ron Swanson said that crying, crying is appropriate at funerals in the Grand Canyon. If you go to the Grand Canyon, you'll drive down this long desert road. Right? And you'll see signs that say, Grand Canyon. Some of the signs will be metal and shiny. Some of them will be wooden and splintered. Some of them will be, you know, stained by whatever, rain, or bleached by the sun. And when you get to the edge of the Grand Canyon, there'll be one more sign that says Grand Canyon Park. And when you get to that last sign, believe me, you don't stare at that sign for long. Because ten feet past it is the Grand Canyon. And if you get to the Grand Canyon and you say, look at that sign. And you sit there and you marvel at the splintered wood-burned sign that says Grand Canyon Park. And you just stare at the sign and say, well, that sign has some great qualities. It's square. It's solid. It's amazing. I want to be like that sign. I want to be such a sign like that that I want to just become this sign. And then you walk away and you miss the Grand Canyon. You've missed everything. In the same way, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look at what Moses did. Look at what God did in Moses. Look at what God did through Moses. But recognize that Moses was a faithful servant whose role was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Friends, if we assess our faith and we look at our faith and we look at the tradition we come from, which is good, and we look at the heroes in our lives who, who are embodying the faith in such a way, if we look at them and fail to see that they are pointing us to Christ, we miss everything. We're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon staring at a sign rather than the Grand Canyon. And I don't want that for us. The writer of Hebrews did not want that for the first century Christian church. And I don't want that for us either. You see, the role of Moses was to be a faithful servant, to testify to the things that come later. Because what happens, if we fail to see what the sign points to, we end up boasting in the sign. We end up bragging in the sign. We end up putting our faith and hope in the sign. Does that ever happen to you? I mean, you can say, well, I, I have my faith in this sign because it is square and wooden. Or I have my faith in the sign because it is oval and metal and shiny. You can say, well, I have faith because my dad had faith. Or I have faith because I went on so many mission trips in college. Or I trust my faith because of a prayer I prayed or a group I came from. Friends, if those things do not point you to Christ, you're stuck on the sign. And I don't want that for us. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for this church. And I don't think that's what God has for us. So we first must come to grips and be honest at our short-sighted heroism. But here's the good news. Here's the great news of the gospel that Jesus is our true and better hero. That just as Moses was a servant who was faithful, praise God that Moses was faithful. If, if Moses wasn't faithful, we wouldn't have the Old Testament, the first several books. If Moses was not faithful as a servant, uh, so much would, would be wrecked. So praise God that Moses was faithful, but God was doing the work in and through Moses to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Because Jesus is the true and better hero. Verse 6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house 
if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You see that? Scripture says that Moses was faithful as a servant. But Jesus, Christ, is faithful over God's house as a son. There's a drastic difference here. I mean, this would just wreck the mind of a first century religious person who would, who would say, well, I believe the scriptures and Moses was this very amazing, revered leader. And for the writer to say, yeah, but he was a servant. But Jesus was a son. For you and I, maybe that doesn't register what's going on, but, but it would be uh, equivalent to uh, owning a farm or a large estate and you have family after family who, who, or generation after generation within your family that you pass the farm and the estate to, that the grandfather maybe uh, bought the farm and tilled it for his whole life, and then he built the operation and then passed it to his son who ran the farm and then passes it to his son and to his son for generation and generation. Every generation maybe would have a hired hand to come in and help till the earth, but at the end of the day, that hired hand, that servant, would get paid his due and that he would go on about his life. But the son of the father, who would have a son, who would pass the farm on down a generation to generation, is inheriting the whole farm, the whole operation, who owns the whole estate. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He said, look, as much as you revere Moses, revere him. He's a, he is a hero to the faith, but he's a servant. Jesus is a son. Moses just worked the field that Jesus owns. I mean, Moses' role was to till the earth so that fruit would blossom and, and, and grow for the glory of Christ because it's his farm. He uses the analogy of a building that Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God, but Christ is over God's house as a son. If you look at this, we see that we have to understand that Jesus is a true and better hero, that Jesus fulfilled the expectation of what Moses foreshadowed. If you read the book of Exodus and you see the story of Moses, Moses uh, uh, was leading people from bondage to freedom. Jesus leads his people from bondage to freedom, not only physically, but eternally and spiritually. Just as Moses uh, ascended the mountain to meet with God and came down with, with the words of God, Jesus himself is the embodied word of God descending from heaven to us for our benefit. Uh, just as Moses said this is the, the, uh, the way that God's people should live, I mean these are the regulations spiritually and politically of how God's people should operate, Jesus is the true king that comes down and says, let me just show you how to do it. I'm not just going to tell you, but I'm going to show you as the king himself embodied in flesh. See, everything about Moses was the point us to Jesus because Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus Christ is a faithful son. And he is the true and better hero. Just as Moses got to experience the glory of God and reflect the glory of God to God's people, Jesus is the embodied glory of God, radiating God's glory to us. As the writer of Hebrews says, in the earlier chapters. So Hebrews does not discount or dismiss Moses, but rather clarifies for us that Moses is a servant, a sign pointing us to Christ. And this is such good news. Scripture tells us that Jesus, in verse uh, 1, the writer says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. See, 
We looked at this last week and the prior weeks that Jesus is our great high priest. He's the one who mediates our relationship with God. He's the one who takes away our sin and averts the wrath of God so that we can have a right relationship with God the Father. That Jesus is an apostle, the true apostle. That means he's, he's the one sent with a message. He's the one sent with good news. Verse 3 says, um, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus not only is a servant managing the house of God, he's the one who actually is building it. And this is such good news for us. So, as we assess where we come from and, and how we are apart from Christ, as we recognize the ways that in our hearts we idolize and admire servants rather than seeing who the servants point us to. As we see that our heroism is so short-sighted, may we see that Jesus is our true and better hero, embodying the gospel, the sent message of God, embodying God's glory, embodying God's, um, as a son, the, the one who owns the house that he is building. And since Jesus is our true and better hero, we can live a truly heroic life, not in our own strength and for our own glory, but in Christ's strength and for his glory. And scripture tells us a couple things that I want us to take to heart and put into play as Christians today. If we see that our heroism is short-sighted, and if we see that Jesus is our true and better hero, we can see that to live a life in his strength and for his glory looks like this. Scripture says that we're to consider Jesus or to share in our calling, and we're to hold fast our confidence. If you look at verse 1, Scripture says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Okay, this is where the rubber hits the road. Right, we're talking about right, Jesus is our true and better hero. I get that. Well, what do you do with that? This is what you do. If Jesus is our true and better hero, which he is, what do we do about it? Here's what we do. First, Scripture says, consider Jesus. Verse 1, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, when I say the word consider, sometimes that can be a very quick passing thing, right? Like if you say, hey, man, uh, do you want to read that action flick or the, or the rom-com tonight? Well, have you considered The Expendables too? It's pretty jamming, right? No, have you considered the other movie? Often we can use the word consider just as a, passing, excuse me, as a passing glancing at something. Like, have you considered this? But the way it's used in Scripture here, the word for consider is not just a passing glance, but it's actually an intense looking. So if I were to say to you, consider Jesus, it's not, well, I don't know, I mean, do you like Moses or Jesus? I don't know, pepperoni or what? You know, no, it's consider Jesus. It means to stare intently at Christ. This changes everything. Because often we can be pretty passive in our faith and say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Um, Jesus is my true and better hero, so I'll just, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm just waiting on the heavenly bus to come get me. Scripture says because Jesus is our true and better hero, we are to actively look at him. Ongoing, intent focus on Christ. This changes everything, friends. How often do we not intently gaze upon our Savior? How often do we just passively 
give Jesus a nod. Think about it. Think about what you do when you wake up in the mornings and you get out of bed and you say, I need to have a quick, quiet time. Let me just you know, say a quick prayer, glance at the Bible, and then just get on with your day. That is a nice little nod to the Savior. But Scripture says, consider Jesus. Actively, intently gaze. Fix your eyes on Christ. This will change everything for you. Because if you are going to a job that is hard, and you just kind of glance at Jesus and you go throughout your day, it is going to be awful. But if you say, look, this job is not my dream job. It's God's provision for now. Let me fix my eyes on Christ and get through this horrendous day. Maybe you are having relational tension with your spouse or your children or your parents or your in-laws. It happens sometime to some people. Happens to everybody, people. That's why the writer of Scripture says, Consider Jesus, fix your eyes on Christ, because if you wake up in the morning after a fight with your spouse, or you go to bed at night after a fight with your parents, or you go to bed at night after having a hard time disciplining your children, and you fix your eyes on the situation, and you just give a nod to Jesus, all seems despairing and hopeless. But if we fix our gaze on Christ, we recognize that in the end, he is the one who is leading us from bondage to freedom, from slavery to eternal joy, from the wrath of God to the peace of God, from the effects of brokenness and sin to paradise. We fix our eyes on Christ and we can get through everything. So what are some ways we do that? To consider Jesus, what are some ways we actively gaze upon Christ? A couple ways I want to encourage you is this, Scripture prayer, worship. I want want to encourage you as we gather to worship together that this is how we communally are fixing our eyes on Christ. As we open the word together, we are fixing our eyes on Christ. We are fixing our eyes on Christ as we pray. And friends, I encourage you to do this every day by yourself, with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with some friends, with your missional community. Because if we are not considering Jesus, actively gazing, fixing our eyes on Christ, all will be lost. But secondly, the writer says this. I mean, since Jesus is our true and better hero, we, number one, consider him, fix our eyes on him. Secondly, we share in the calling. I like this. Share in the calling is what verse 1 says. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... That's a huge statement. To share in a calling, okay, calling can mean two things. And I'm so, excuse me just a second. I apologize. I'm having a cold, an active cold as you gaze. Excuse me. I apologize, folks, to sinus issues. So to share in a calling... Biblically, the word calling means a couple things. The word calling could mean both designation and direction. The word calling can mean your name, like you were called whatever your name is. I am called Jeremy. But in Scripture, the word calling can also mean direction, like a summoning. So if you have a heavenly calling, it means you are identified as someone belonging to God. And also, your motivation is heavenly, heavenward. You with me? And so as we 
see that Jesus is our true and better hero, we are to consider him. That means fix our eyes upon him. And secondly, we share in a calling together. That means we share in an identity as being his people. Also, we share in a motivation that is heavenward. And this should change everything about who we are together and how we live our lives. This is why the author uses the the phrase holy brothers. I mean, the word brothers really means siblings. It means brothers and sisters. So this is not only for guys, it's for you too, ladies. The the original Greek is brothers and sisters, right? So therefore, holy brothers and sisters. Holy means to be set apart for a holy purpose, for the purpose of God. So, So we have been identified as God's people together. We have the direction that is heavenward together is a heavenly calling. This community language makes sense too as you read further down. It says in verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So you see that Jesus being our true and better hero, we consider him by fixing our eyes upon him and also we share in a calling together, both an identity and a heavenly direction together. This is a community thing. Friends, um, your faith is not a solo activity. And the second you think that it is, you were, you were doomed to become either some elitist, pharisaical jerk or a very lonely, confused person apart from God's family who he has given you to share in your burdens and to help build you up in your faith. I see it constantly, and it breaks my heart. People say, the church burned me. Well, you know what else burned you? Walmart and McDonald's and everywhere where there's a human, and I don't see you not shopping there anymore, right? Bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, great. Go to the bank and cash your check. They have hypocrites there too, right? All the high and mighty people, they don't come here. So there you go. We're all a bunch of people that are broken and need Jesus, and our role to share in our calling together is to say, I'm a broken person, I need Jesus. Let's look to him together. I, want, I need help fixing my eyes on Christ because I often forget to fix my eyes on Christ. That's why I'm a part of this church, because some of you guys say, Jeremy, you're not fixing your eyes on Christ. Thank you. Fixing my eyes on Christ. So we share in a calling together in our identity and direction. We are a community together who is looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the founder of our salvation, the true hero who has rescued us and averted the wrath of God and taken the penalty of sin, taken us from bondage to freedom. Us, not you, us, not me, but us together. That's why we gather to worship every Sunday. That's why we gather in missional communities. That's why we have hymn sings and play frisbee together and eat food. It's because we celebrate that Jesus is awesome. And we're a mess, but we're, it's a fun mess. It's the best mess to be in. I want you to be in this mess. I want to be in this mess, so don't kick me out after this sermon if I offended, if I have offended. And so finally this. We see since Jesus is our true and better hero, we see that we are to consider him. That means to actively look. That means we, to share, we are to share in our calling. That means both an identity and direction, a heavenly motivation. And thirdly and lastly, we are to hold fast our confidence. It's a great word. right? Verse 6, Christ is faithful. I love that. He's like, we're not faithful. We're unfaithful. We are fickle. That's the whole point of Hebrews. <laughs> Is these Christians that are like, they know the apostles, they have like handwritten scriptures from the apostles, and they're saying, 
The faith is hard. We just want to go back to Judaism because Moses was legit. And the writer is saying, he was, but his role was to point you to Jesus. Because Christ is faithful. We are unfaithful. Moses was unfaithful. He rebelled against God and didn't get to go into the promised land. Hmm? You and I are unfaithful in our faith, but Christ is faithful. That is where we find our confidence is in Christ's faithfulness. He is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Our confidence is in Christ because he is faithful. Our confidence is not in our tradition. Our confidence is not in our spiritual disciplines. Our confidence is not in our church attendance or our giving or our missional activities. Those are all good things that are outpourings of Christ's faithfulness to us. You with me? Those things happen because Christ is faithful to us. If you are generous and missional and have legit spiritual disciplines, praise the Lord. Christ has been so faithful to you. Continue to worship him by doing those things. That's what scripture says here. Since Christ is faithful over us because he is the son, we are his house. Therefore, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. I love this. Boasting is good. Did you know that? Be braggadocious to the glory of God. See, what happens is when we fail to fix our eyes on Christ, we become braggadocious about other things. Right? If you don't consider Jesus, you will be braggadocious about how awesome your church is or how great the preacher is. It's okay. It's okay. I'll check the tweet later. Tweet something. I'm just kidding. But seriously. Seriously. It, the second we take our eyes off Christ, we will brag about something else, about how just whatever. It could be something spiritual, like, hey, man, um, I don't know, fill in the blank. Mike will. Holding fast our confidence means we boast in our hope. Our hope is Christ. Be braggadocious about Jesus. That's what I love about being a Christian is you can still brag. I'm a boastful person. As long as I consider Christ, I can boast about him. The Bible says I'm supposed to, which is great. But the second I take my eyes off of Jesus, I start boasting in something else. I boast in my knowledge. I boast in my skill. I boast, and all of us do. You will find something to boast in because God has wired you to be a boastful person. But if you take your eyes off of Jesus, you will boast in your strength or your skill or your speed or your looks or your money or your status. But when you consider Jesus, when you fix your eyes on him and you consider your calling together with other believers, what you find yourself doing is boasting in how good Jesus is. And you say, look what Christ has done to take this disaster and make him a son of God. <laughs> That's all I want to do every Sunday. I'm a disaster. But look at what Jesus did. Apart from Christ, I was insane. He's still working on me. By God's grace, he has adopted me to be a son. And so, friends, if you were here today and you're not a Christian, I want to brag on Jesus and say, in Christ, you are an adopted son of God. In Christ, you are an adopted daughter of God. In Christ, you can brag on what he has done for you. But if you are seeking uh, 
identity and security in your own strength and skill and beauty and status and opportunity and wealth and whatever, you are destined for destruction. And I tell you that, not in judgment, but in love, because I want you to know my Jesus. I want you to know the Jesus who has saved this disaster. Hmm? I want you to know the Jesus who is better than Moses, who is the awesomest religious person ever. I mean, if Jesus is better than Moses, there's no way you can ever be better than Moses. So why try, right? Just look to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you that you are faithful, even though I'm unfaithful. Thank you that you were faithful over your people, even though I'm fickle. We hold fast to that confidence in Christ, and we boast in this hope. So I'm just going to wrap it up by saying this. First and foremost, I want us to assess where we are in our faith, how we identify heroes, so to speak, of the faith. I mean, what do you value? And how is that shaping you as a person? Those are idols, we often say. I mean, if you, if you value someone or something, even if it's good, if you value someone or something more than you value Christ, it's an idol in your life. And so I want us to come to grips with those idols and recognize them as such and ask Jesus to reveal himself to be our true and better hero so that we can boast in him. We can hold fast the confidence that we can consider Jesus to share in the calling together and to hold fast the confidence and brag about who he is and what he's done for us, right? That's my hope and prayer for us. If you're not a Christian, I want you to consider Jesus. If you are a Christian, I want you to join me in repenting. That means to turn away from sin and idols and to turn to Jesus. We need to be ongoingly repenting, ongoingly considering Jesus, fixing our eyes on Christ and saying, I'm yours, Lord. Save me. Save me. That is my hope and prayer for Redemption Church. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you, uh, God, that you are a good God. Uh, Lord, that in the midst of challenges and hard times, God, in the midst of sickness and struggles, in the midst of uh, idols, in the midst of death, in the midst of hardship and relational tension, in the midst midst of pride, uh, God, I thank you that you were faithful. Jesus, you were the faithful son over God's house. And God, I thank you that in your faithfulness we find our confidence. God, may we never find our full confidence in our tradition or our past or our religious upbringing or our spiritual disciplines, but rather may we see how you use those things to point us to Jesus. God, as we assess who we are and where we come from and those who we revere as heroes, may we not be fixated on the signs, but rather see what the signs point to. God, I thank you for your servant Moses whose role was to serve in such a way to testify to the things that were to come. That is you, Jesus. And Jesus, thank you that you were the faithful son who saves us and rescues us. God, I pray for those who don't know you, that you would reveal yourself to them as the true and better hero, that that Jesus, you were the, the better hero than any religion, than any religious leader, than any philosophical construct, than any education, any amount of money or status, 
or strength or wisdom or beauty. Jesus, that you are far better than all of those things that we may idolize and find our strength and security in. Jesus, I pray that by your spirit you would awaken dead hearts and dead minds and blind eyes and deaf ears to realize who you are and how wonderful you are. God, I pray that you would save those who don't know you. And Jesus, I thank you that for those of us who you have rescued, God, that you continue to work in us. God, through our faults, through our feebleness and fickleness and silliness and just randomness, our scatterbrainedness and goofiness, God, in the midst of it all, you are faithful. And God, I pray that we would consider you, God, personally, in our marriages and families, God, in our communities and in this church, that we would fix our eyes upon you, Jesus, that our gaze would be locked on you, that we would be unwavering. And God, that we would not only consider you, Jesus, but God, that we would share in this calling together, that we would affirm the identity we have as your children. God, for those who are struggling with sin, that we could show grace. For those who are confessing idolatry in certain ways, that we could show grace. God, that we would be honest enough to admit our, admit our own struggles because we're so locked on you, Jesus, that we have no fear in admitting how broken we really are. God, that we could just stand up before one another and say, like, I don't care what you think about me because I know I'm locking my eyes on Jesus. So it's okay to say I'm broken in this area. I'm sinning in this area. I need redemption in this area. So God, may we together consider our calling and consider you, Jesus. And God, that this would bring such confidence that we are the most braggadocious people in the city that are bragging not on redemption or Acts 29 or anything else, but Lord, that we would be bragging on how awesome you are and that you would in your grace come and rescue a bunch of crazy sinners like us, like me. God, I pray that you would do amazing things for your glory and for our joy and that this good news would ripple from this little school in Augusta, Georgia and ripple out to the nations so that everyone on the earth would know the beauty of Jesus. I beg you to do this by your spirit for your glory. Amen.